Welcome to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. Here at Fremont, we create space for people to become lifelong followers of Jesus, and we relentlessly pursue His transformation of our neighborhood, our city, and the world. Here's today's message. We're going to read Colossians 3, 1-11. So if you want to get out your tangible Bibles, digital Bible, it's all God's Word. All right. Put on the new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Heather. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, You are so kind to use your word to comfort us, to warn us, to encourage us, to assure us, to convict us. We pray now that the same spirit that breathed this word out would breathe understanding into our hearts the way that you intend. So Father, we pray that within our minds and hearts, you would grant us a a stillness. You would protect against distraction or a wandering mind. And instead we pray you would give us eyes to behold the astounding beauty, worth, majesty, splendor of Christ that is here. As a result, we pray that our hearts would grow in affection for Christ. And as a result, anything that we have looked to with greater affection, God, would Christ supplant that now? We pray you would do that through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We have two dogs at home. Uh, one of them is a Russell Terrier named Obi. Uh, Obi's favorite pastime is to chase squirrels, and he can see them from within the house. And so uh, when he goes to the back sliding glass door and one of us opens it, he just tears out. He never catches them. Um, And inevitably the squirrel will jump on top of the fence or the tree and he will just sit like this with his head tilted and nonstop high pitched barking. And after a while, we begin to feel partially guilty that we're disturbing our neighbor's peace and quiet. Uh, We go to the back door and we tell him to come in. And uh, in that moment, there's really only two hopes we have to actually get him to listen. Uh, One is we could bribe him. Um, If we happen to be able to get the word treat 
in between barks, there's a slight chance. Um, but inevitably, if that doesn't work, we resort to idle threats. <laughs> we just threaten him. We don't mean anything we're saying. Uh, and, and, he, and he comes in. Uh, there, there's something about in the heat of the moment, we are, our hope in that desperate moment is that our threatening him will coerce him into obedience. And I, I wonder if that's partially how we view our master and, and the way that he uh, seeks to bring us into obedience. Uh, today, I think what we're going to discover is that our master has a vastly superior strategy for leading us into obedience than I do with my dog. And in fact, what we're going to see is this strategy not only is superior, but it becomes the means that turns our obedience from uh, joyless outward conformity into inward joyful transformation. And so the big idea that we're going to see in our passage today is this. Because you've been raised with Christ, you are to seek the things above. And, and because you have died with Christ, you are to shun the things beneath. Now, notice the big idea is not to seek the things above and shun the things beneath. Because what we're going to see in this whole passage, we see it right here in the big idea, is that what we do flows out of what has first been done. We don't do in order to accomplish done. Our doing flows out of what has already been done. So here's what we're, the outline we're going to follow. It's going to be in your bulletin. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at what it means to be raised with Christ. And in verses 5 through 11, we're going to look at what it means that we died with Christ. So first, raised with Christ. Uh, and before we even get into the, 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 the details, I want us to notice the astounding structure of this passage. And so what I want us to do is differentiate between these statements, and I'm going to invite your participation on this. What we want to discover is how many of these are commands or what we're to do, or how many of these are realities, what has been done for us. All right, so I'm just, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to say, is this something that we do or is this something that has been done for us? All right, so if then you have been raised with Christ, is that something that's been done or is that something we to do? It's been done. So let's just bracket that in yellow. All right. You guys are just hoping I'm going to write this week again and make it look really bad. All right. Uh, what about uh, next part? Seek the things above. Is that something we were to do or something that's been done? Do. So let's do red for that. All right. What? <laughs> you guys like the different colors? <laughs> I might not be able to write, but I know my colors. What about set your minds on things that are above? Do or done? Do. So that's a command. Above, not on things on earth. What about verse three? For uh, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Done. What about verse four? When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do or done? Done. Good. And that's the, that's the promise in these first four verses. So what we see here, even with the command, so the first one, seek the things that are above, that flows out of the fact that something already happened to us in the past that informs how we conduct ourselves in the present. So the seeking, the do, flows out of already what's been done. Look at verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for that's because you have died. So in other words, the reality of verse three 
that's, that's what's been done. It beckons us to do something in verse two, to, to set our minds on things above. So we must not reverse this process. We don't seek the things above in order to be raised with Christ. We don't set our minds on things above in order to die with Christ. So the commands flow from something, not to something. And that changes everything. Now, it's so easy in our Christian life, we get tunnel vision in our faith. And often what happens, functionally speaking, these glorious realities, we just kind of, they're not real to us. So we kind of do this. Uh, we just kind of block this out. We block these promises out. And then all we do is focus on these commands. And we're like, oh man, my walk, it's so burdensome. It's joyless. It's hopeless. It's nothing but a bunch of rules. This is really hard. And what we're not doing is, is we're, are, we're not seeing everything we're doing flows out of what has first been done. We're not seeing the glorious realities. Now I've had so many issues with my phone charger for the last months. I go to try to plug it in and I got to like jiggle it. I got to tilt it. I got to prop it. I got to turn it upside down and then I back away really slowly. And one night, uh, not only did it not charge, when I got up in the morning and I hadn't touched it, it dropped 26%, like with doing nothing. And it got me thinking, when what we do doesn't flow out of what's been done, our spiritual batteries are drained even when we're doing nothing. And we just can't seem to get a consistent charge in our lives. So first statement, if then, that is Paul's way of saying, hey, remember what I said before, if then. So chapter two, verse 12, this was two weeks ago, um, having been buried, so that's dying with Christ, with him in baptism in which you were also raised, that's our resurrection with Christ, with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about this dominant scriptural theme called our union with Christ. And that basically means like, it's like we're married with him. Like we are so intertwined, enveloped by him, hidden in him, that the glorious realities that are true about him became our realities. When he died, we died to our old self. When he rose, we were raised as new creations. Think about this. If you are in Christ, the father does not see you without seeing his son and he does not see his son without seeing you. Like that's, that's how connected we are. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have passed. Behold, all things are new. So what Paul is saying is live into your reality. Become who you already are, right? Fish, woman, water, Squirrels bury peanuts. Dogs chase squirrels. Christians who are raised seek the things above. That's Paul's logic here. Now, I want us to keep in mind the immediate backdrop for chapter three, because this is really going to inform our understanding. So we're going to go to the verse where we left off last week. It's the verse literally before chapter three, verse one. It says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that's the, that's the backdrop. And what Paul is saying, there's no human willpower. This is outward form of religion that's going to bring inward change. Paul's saying, don't fight the flesh with the flesh. That's not how you defeat the flesh. And so chapter three now is his pivot 
That's the, Paul's not only going to say, hey, this is the problem. Paul's also going to say, oh, this is the solution. And that's what he gives us in chapter three. He says, transformation happens by becoming mesmerized by a person. And that person is Christ. So we're just going to follow Paul's line of thought. We're going to allow him to just lift up the person of Christ. And we're going to see how that begins to affect change. So the first thing we see here uh, about Christ, Christ is seated. This is our Old Testament reading, seated at the right hand of God. Now in the Old Testament, priests never sat. They were always standing because there was another sacrifice to make. There was always another guilty conscience. And so when Christ offered himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice, he sat down signifying there is nothing to add to a completed work. And I think one of the things that prevents us from delighting in God and seeking the things above is if we're paralyzed with guilt, we do not want to be in someone's presence whom we feel guilty around. And Paul is saying, Christian, look in the heavens, your high priest, he is seated at the right hand of God. He is not pacing in the heavens. He is seated in the heavens. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The verb tense here, it's a past event that indicates a continuous reality. So the Christian never becomes unhidden. We don't have a bad day and become out of Christ. Think of Genesis and Noah and the ark, right? No matter the downpour of the floodwaters, they were hidden in the ark and they were protected from the elements that wiped everyone else out. In the same way, the Christian is hidden in Christ. They do not face the judgment of the world. We're no longer exposed like we once were. We are hidden. When I was a kid and I would get scared in the middle of the night, I would get out of bed, I'd run down the hall and I'd open my parents' door and I'd jump in between them in the bed and I'd pull the covers over me and just be like this. And I felt so invincible. If I felt invincible with covers over my head, how much more so are we secure when our lives are hidden in Christ? Look at verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So our lives won't just be hidden. They will also fully and finally be revealed. The one who is seated will stand up and he will consummate in full what has already begun in part. Is there not something within us that just longs for the absence of suffering and death? And when we put our faith in Christ, there's like this little acorn of glory uh, that comes within us. It's partially obscured, but scripture says we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so there's a time coming when Christ returns to that acorn just becomes this mighty oak. Our deepest longings will finally be met. But the reason this is such good news is because Christ is our life. Think about it. If Christ isn't our life, then his returning actually interferes in what we've made a greater glory and this promise will not move us. So do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is counteracting the pleasures of the flesh with the superior pleasures of Christ. Paul isn't just saying, ah, don't do something. He's saying, no, 
have eyes in your heart that see something so magnificent, so much better than what you, you are chasing, right? He's saying, if Christ is seen for who he is, the Colossians, they will become so enamored. They will become so, they will be so uh, captivated by the person of Christ that everything else they used to look to will lose their lust, it will lose its appeal in the shadow of the beauty of Christ, right? It's like that song, turn your eyes. The things of this earth, will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And so when the beauty of Christ, when it prevails upon the human heart, it then unseats that which the heart previously found beautiful and it dislodges it. Listen to this quote, Scottish pastor from the 1600s, always a good person to quote. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So do you see what Paul is doing? Do you see this quote? The idea is the heart will be captivated by something. And the way to overcome the flesh isn't to fight it with the flesh. It's to be captivated by a person. That person is Christ. And when Christ is seen for who he is, he supplants that which our hearts previously found so compelling. See, now the commands in our passage, they become joyful. Like, of course, I want to seek the things above. That's where my life is. Of course, I want to set my minds on things above. They're, they're enthralled. It's enthralled with Christ. I want to be there. Think about it. The human will will always follow its affections. It's hard to enact lasting change for Christ apart from having affections for Christ. When my daughter was about nine, my realities in the afternoon were playing Barbies. My realities on Friday nights were watching American Girl Doll movies. Why? My will followed my affections. Why else would I watch Barbie? Otherwise, that makes no sense. Can you imagine someone coming up to me and threatening me or commanding me to play with Barbie? I'd be like, no, I think I'll watch sporting event. Thank you very much. But because my affections were for her, my will followed. And too many of us are living out our faith, white knuckling it without pondering the beauties, the splendor, and the worth of Christ. And we are drained and feeling stagnant. Paul is saying there is a better way. It's right here. That's one through four. As we get ready to turn to five through 11, Paul is going to list off multiple sins that the Christian is to put off, but we can't do this apart from verses one through four. They're meant to go together. So now we're gonna look at what it means to be dead with Christ. If we're dead with Christ, we're to shun the things beneath. So verse five says, uh, put to death, therefore, okay, that's huge. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, let's again, let's appreciate the structure of this passage. The therefore sends us back to one through four. So Christian, you have have died. 
You've been raised. You're in union with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. He is your life. He is your prize. Die to what's already dead. Become who you already are. This idea of dying to our old selves, it just simply means that what previously controlled us no longer controls us, even though it still exists. So Paul gives us two sets of five earthly practices here. So in verse five, we have the five practices. This is very, I think, fitting. We just came off this idea that we're in union with Christ. Like we're married to Christ. The first five sins, they're they're union sins. We're married to Christ. Therefore, these practices violate our union with him. Sexual immorality right here, it's kind of like the junk drawer term to refer to any sexual act outside of the covenant of marriage. The first two terms are things that we do, actions. And the last three are inward desires. So Paul says, he says, hey, don't just cut off this outward action, like pull it up at the root. Like don't let the smoldering flames of temptation stay hidden. Don't play with fire. And he says he calls coveting idolatry. So a 10th commandment violation is a first commandment violation, right? At the end of the day, the root of sin is disordered love. It's a failure to think on verses one through four and seeking our contentment outside of Christ because in the moment we feel that he is not enough. Now, some are tempted to view like lists like this. This is kind of my problem with Christianity. I kind of view God as this kind of cosmic, uh, this cosmic killjoy with antiquated rules. Uh, Yet what we have here is a worship issue. The idolatry and coveting, they're like a spiritual poison. It destroys the soul because it gives to the creature what is rightfully the creator's. And in this case, it looks for sexual satisfaction to provide what only can be found in the savior. And so these moral commands are actually, they don't kill our joy. They preserve our joy because they keep our loves rightly ordered, which is how we're going to have the most joy in this life. See, all throughout scripture, we see sexual immorality and idolatry are intertwined. Now, marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church, this covenant. And so when sex is had outside of marriage, right, it becomes idolatry because it's no longer this self-giving love, but this self-receiving love. And it's done with partial commitment, not total commitment. And therefore it doesn't reflect Christ's total covenantal love for his bride that he commits to fully. But the beautiful thing is that when it's had within that covenant, it is a beautiful thing. It is a gift, nothing to be ashamed about because it is done in the full covenant and it's a way, a self-giving love. Now, I realize with the nature of this list of five things in verse five, I understand it has the potential to elicit um, a, a sense of shame within us where we have fallen short. And let's just say this is not Paul's point. Let me remind us that Christ is seated in the heavens. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no guilt or shame offering. The one who is seated wants us to offer in addition to his perfect sacrifice. 
And whether you've struggled with sins in this category or in the one to come in our anger category, we are equally in need of a savior. And so don't let anyone tell you differently, including the voice in your own head. And and if you currently find yourself in the throes of any of these things on this list, I just want to assure you, Christ alone is what you need to be complete. And as Augustine, the great church historian said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. Now, verse six could easily be misinterpreted. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You could think, oh no, the Christian, if they mess up, like they're going to get wrath. No, we're hidden with Christ in God. Christ bore the Christian's wrath in his place and therefore we do not absorb it. Now, warnings in scripture are a gracious means that God gives in order to send us back to the realities of three, one through four. When, we, when, when our spiritual equilibrium is thrown off, warnings help us, they ground us, they help us to land on our feet. Listen to, this is, I think, really encouraging passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is written to the church. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for any who are not in Christ, you are, they are exposed and exposed to what all of us deserve for our sin. And our hope and our prayer is that the person of Christ is so compelling that, we, that you would be wooed to him, that your life would be hidden in him. And the way that our lives are hidden in Christ comes through faith in Christ. And if you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you afterwards. Verse seven says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So do you see here, this should humble us. As Christians, we're not better. This was us until Christ intervened in our life. And so we can't thumb our nose at anyone who who is walking the way we used to as if we are superior. It is our savior who is superior. And now verse eight, we get to our second list of five things to put off. Um, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, interestingly, in verse five, Paul used a slaying metaphor for sin, put to death. Here he uses a stripping metaphor. So put them all away literally means to disrobe or to to put off, to, to strip away. Now, these are primarily horizontal sins, just like the first set was vertical sins. But right, you see the progression, right? Anger sees, it boils over to wrath. Then inside, it's easy to begin to harbor malice. And then we begin to contemplate, how can I slander this person? And then I verbally unload on this person. Now, this list of sins is typically kind of like more acceptable than the previous list but they are equally unfitting for the Christian who has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. So we got to ask the question, like practically speaking, how does one possibly disrobe or put off sinful anger? Cause that's hard. Remember, we don't fight the flesh with the flesh. Paul, we got to go back to verses one through four. And I think Paul's point of what he's going to get out is this. We ponder on what Christ has done for us more than we ponder on what others have done to us. And I think Paul is saying, use use our minds. 
If not, the resentment acts as a poison that will slowly eat away at our souls. But here's the good news. Here's another help we have in our anger because God can be trusted with this vengeance. We don't have to take it into our own hands. Verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off. There's our put off disrobing metaphor again. The old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. But is this great? Once again, we don't tell the truth to put off the old self. You have, past tense. We tell the truth because we have put off our old self. Think about it. Why do we lie? We lie to deceive. We deceive because we want people to think more highly of us. And we want people to think more highly of us because we have forgotten who we are in Christ. If you think about it, lying is a form of gospel amnesia. We have just, we, we have forgotten who we are in Christ. And the answer is to have our minds renewed in knowledge of the truth. Paul says in chapter one, that the gospel is the message of truth. Our minds will be renewed by something. They will either be renewed by what is false or by what is true. And so here, these individual realities in verse nine and 10, look at what happens in verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He moves from our individual realities to our corporate reality when we put on the new person in Christ. These different distinctions that used to be something that would divide people when Christ becomes all in all, those things dissipate in light of who Christ is. We don't lose our distinctions. We see in Revelation, every nation, tribe, tongue is standing before the throne, but those things are no longer paramount. Christ is paramount and only he is the glue strong enough to bind all these different groups of people together. And the term barbarian, it's a derogatory term. They used to use it to people who could only, they think could say bar, bar, bar and they'd make fun of them. Scythians are savages. The point here, all these different distinctions melted, done, because we are one new person in Christ. And so because we have been raised with Christ, we can seek the things above. And because we have died with Christ, we can shun the things beneath. So I think there's a couple ways that we can respond today. One, um, if you have been seeking like every one of us have at some point. If you have been seeking your contentment outside of Christ, looking for something to play the role of him in your life, I just, I want to urge you, Christ, Christ is better. He is more satisfying. And, and I want to persuade you to, to turn to him. And if you have questions, we would love to talk with you about that. For the Christians in the room, I think it's so easy for us who've kind of grown up in church and kind of know it to go throughout our week in, week out lives, not really thinking, not really pondering these majestic truths of Colossians one through four. And we just start fighting the flesh in the power of the flesh rather than being captivated by the beauty of Christ. Like what if this week we used our minds to really saturate ourselves in all that is true about Christ? And so as we wrap this up, I'll say, you know, I'll probably keep threatening my dog. Uh, 
it works. But as Christians, our master is not threatening us. He is wooing us into obedience. And so may the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us. Uh, 11 verses just packed with uh, your kindness and care and love for us. Help us become who we are in Christ already. Help us to fight the flesh, not in the power of the flesh, but, but by being captivated by a better master. God, I pray that your spirit would take these truths, that you would seal them within our hearts. I pray that we would not be forgetful people. But Father, I pray that our affections by the work of your spirit would be stirred for Christ. We pray that you would do this now. We pray that you would do this as we sing. And we pray that we would, you would do this throughout the week. And we pray for that strong work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope that you were blessed by the message. You can send your questions or comments directly to us at podcast at fremontpress.org. That's podcast at fremontpress.org. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. We have classic worship in the sanctuary at 9 a.m. and modern worship in the Community Life Center at 10.30 a.m. You can find the live stream of both of those services at fremontpress.org. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed to get the latest episode each week automatically. Thanks for listening.